morning, everybody. Let's, uh, let's pray together. All of our campuses, if you would, bow your heads and let's, um, let's go before the throne of God. Father, we are very grateful this morning, God, to have a chance to know the unspeakable riches of Christ, the, the love, the forgiveness that's offered to us in the person of Jesus. Father, we want you to open our eyes this morning. Father, I pray specifically for those in this audience that you have put on my heart that, uh, Father, are wandering. Uh, some of them, sin crouches at the door, uh, God, and wants to destroy them. I pray that this would be a morning where their eyes would be open, God, where they would be returned, God, to the shepherd of their, soul, of their souls who calls them back to himself. Father, we commit these moments to you and ask God that you give us the ability to hear from you in your compassion. Give this to us. Holy Spirit, come right now and fill this room, every room, God, of all of our campuses. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. I uh, want you to get out your Bible if you have your Bible. Uh, we are just finishing up a series on the gospel, and I want to spend the next few weeks with you just reading a book of the Bible together. And that book is First Peter because I love the questions and the answers that Peter asks and then gives. Uh, if you have never developed the habit of reading the Bible daily, this would be a fantastic time to start. You could just read First Peter along with me as us as we go through this. And you could read it through several times in the next several weeks. By the time we're doing it, I did not write a book that goes along with this series, uh, which, by the way, I want to, uh, so that's why we can spend most of our time in First Peter, which is going to be a much better um, anyway, but I want to tell you how, how grateful I am to you. Uh, some of you have been so gracious uh, just in the comments that you've made uh, to me um, about the book that, uh, that I published and, or I wrote and published uh, last month, so I just want to thank you. It's I'm just such a joy to, to be a part of this church and to have you speak words of courage um, and power into my life. Um, I, uh, and thank you for starting that countdown clock, by the way. I was about to tell you about that, because otherwise we'll be here at 1230, because, um, all right, uh, First Peter, if you got the, the, your Bible open to First Peter, um, it's a book toward the end of the New Testament. Uh, the author of First Peter is Peter, that's right, duh, uh, that's why we call it First Peter. Uh, Peter is an apostle that everybody seems to like, because there's just something about Peter that we seem to be able to identify with. Is that not true? Uh, Peter's just a normal guy. He had a big mouth. He said some stupid things. Uh, he was not real churchy either, which sometimes I think we find refreshing. Uh, the Apostle Paul sometimes way up here. You ever notice that? Peter's almost always way down here. Paul was like, you know, I'm a, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and I, I went to the highest school in the land, and I, I got more credentials than you could ever dream of having a uh, dream of having, and Peter's like, yeah, but I know the difference in a, in a carp and a crappy. That's kind of, that comes out of my profession. Uh, Paul strikes me as the kind of guy that translated documents from ancient Syriac in his spare time for fun. Peter is the kind of guy who probably made beer in his bathtub. Uh, that's the difference I see between those two. Paul's History Channel, Peter's Sports Center. Um, Peter writes this book as a normal guy to normal people, and he writes it to people who are in the, middle, in the midst of suffering. They don't understand why they're going through suffering. They don't understand what they should do about it. One of the things that I think is helpful for us to see right as we begin this is that Bible writers never really hide themselves from the question of suffering. You see, every once in a while I get the impression that people feel like we came up with the questions of suffering and how 
suffering presents challenges to the idea that there is a good God. We almost, it's almost like we assume that back then everybody thought, of course, you know, all the wicked people get punished and all the good people get rewarded. But now, now we're aware of questions like, hey, a lot of good people go unrewarded and a lot of evil people seem to go unpunished. And there are kids, innocent children that suffer all around the world. So how could that possibly exist and there be a good God? Y'all, Peter is not only aware of that question, he and the people that he's writing to are living that question. At one point in this book, Peter's going to talk about the fiery trials they're going through. That might have been literal. Some Roman emperors were known to dip political prisoners into oil and impale them on poles and then light them on fire. So when Peter says fiery trial, that might not even be a metaphor. We know for a fact that this happened to many Christians around Peter's time. Genocide was a part of the Roman ruling system. Whole families, men, women, and children would be slaughtered on the whim of a Roman emperor. So all that to say is the people that Peter's writing to are living this question of suffering and a good God. Right? So let's begin in verse 1. Here's what Peter says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, Asia and Bithynia. Bithynia, all right? Elect exiles. Elect, that's a very important name. Elect means that they're the chosen people of God. Exiles means that they're not in their home territory. Some translations may even say aliens there. All right? These were both names that had been given to the Jewish people at one point. The Jews were God's elect people. They'd been chosen by him. But at one point in their history, they'd been driven out of Israel to live in a foreign land as exiles. Peter now gives that name to the church. He says, you are God's chosen people living in a land under the domination of an enemy power. So in other words, you don't really belong here. You're citizens of another country. You are not privileged people here on the earth. Again, some translations say aliens. Some say strangers. You're odd. That's one of the things he's going to try to explain. You're odd. You don't fit. That's just because you're tuned into something entirely different. You've got a whole different set of values. Imagine, I know many of you watch football games this weekend. Imagine at you know, halftime you see one of those drum corps um, come out and take the field for the halftime show. And there's like five, six hundred of them, a huge one, biggest one you've ever seen. And of course, they're all focused on that one guy in the middle, that one guy or girl who is the conductor and they're leading and everybody is in lockstep marching to exactly the same beat. But you notice one guy in the middle who's got headphones on and he's listening to an Usher song that's being broadcast from, uh, what's that, Foxy 107. Okay, he's listening to that on his, imagine how odd that guy is going to look. Now, it's not really odd if you consider what he's listening to, but he looks odd in the midst of everybody else because everybody else is marching to the beat of one conductor and he's listening to something entirely different. Paul, uh, Peter says this is why you are odd, because you have a whole different set of values and you are tuned in to an entirely different conductor. And by the way, if you're not odd, then that means that you're probably more in rhythm with the world than you are with God. Oh, and here's another good point, I think. That oddness is not supposed to be because of personality quirks, right? I know some of you are odd for that reason. That's not what he's talking about. You're not odd because you've created a Christian subculture where you use all the same words and because you like different kinds of music. And, you know, some of the churches I grew up in, that seemed to be what made Christians odd is that you just had this whole distinct subculture that defined who you are. That's not what he's talking about. What makes God's people odd is not how they dress and not special words that they use. What makes them odd is how they 
don't listen at all to the things that the world says is important. And primarily that shows up, Peter's going to show you, with the question of suffering. What separates, listen, the people of God from the people of the world most distinctly, you'll see this in 1 Peter, is how they respond to disappointment, how they respond to pain, and how they have hope in the midst of suffering. That is to be the one area where Christians, followers of Jesus, are so distinctive, Peter's going to explain, that people just start to ask questions. All right, verse 3. Blessed be, he says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. According to his great mercy. Peter starts out reminding them of the mercy of God in their lives. Here's why I think that's important. We tend to approach the questions of suffering as if, you know, we're all real good and, and all the bad stuff that's happening is, is, you know, not fair. You know the essence of religion, which people sometimes don't understand me when I say this, but the Bible is against religion. The gospel is totally different than religion. The essence of religion is I'm good and God owes me. The essence of the gospel is I am evil, but God is merciful, therefore I owe God. And that creates two entirely different outlooks on life, entirely different approaches to God. So he reminds them of mercy. The gospel is mercy. We deserve the wrath of God. The world is under a curse, all of us. And God's goodness in our lives is mercy. In God's mercy, he has made us be born again to a living hope. The living hope. A living hope is what you look forward to on the other side of pain. It's what tells you that everything's going to be okay. It's what tells you that it's all going to be worth it. It's what you hang on to that gives you, that gives your spirit something to, to, to grasp in the middle of all the pain. That quest for hope is, is a universal human experience. I was listening to Tim Keller preach a message recently on this subject, and he referenced the work of a guy named Viktor Frankl, who was a, a Jewish-Austrian psychoanalyst that was imprisoned at, at Auschwitz. He had been taken captive by the Germans, and, um, but was one of the few survivors there. Frankl noted how different people responded to suffering in the death camps, and he wrote a book about it later called Man's Search for Meaning. He said that he said it was it was to him fascinating, not in a you know, I mean, not fascinating is probably the wrong word, but just um, the, the things that he noticed about how people would respond to this this sense of hopelessness and pain. He said that some of the prisoners responded to their situation by becoming brutal and cruel themselves. After being being treated that way for so long, they 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 just begin to lash out. He said he said sometimes it was a quest for power, sometimes it was just bitterness. Others, Frankel said, would just give up. He wrote this, and I quote, he said, usually this happened quite suddenly, the symptoms of which were familiar to us, experienced camp inmates. We all feared for this moment and our friends. Usually it began one morning when the prisoner simply refused to get dressed or wash or go out to the parade grounds for inspection. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. They just lay there. They'd given up. Nothing bothered them anymore because they no longer had hope. Many, he said, held on to the hope that if they stayed alive, their health, their family, their professional achievements, their fortune, their position in society, if they could just make it through Auschwitz, they would all be restored to them. That was their hope. After liberation, though, he said that many of them came back to their homes and found that all those things were irretrievably gone. He said that many of them, a disturbingly high percentage of them, went into a deep depression and even committed suicide after having survived through the concentration camps. Why? Because 
their hopes had been on the restoration of these things, and they've been shattered. Frankel, in this book, says that the ones who truly overcame Auschwitz were those who had a fixed reference point beyond the world, something they held onto that was out of the grasp of death and destruction and that the Nazis could never touch. And then Frankel makes this statement. Life in a concentration camp tears open a soul and exposes its depths and its foundations. That's essentially what Peter is saying here. Trials and pain expose where your hope is. There are some of you that are going through trials and pain, and what is happening is where you hope is being exposed. For many of you, your hope in the midst of pain is in, just like Frankel said, your situation improving. So you think, well, you know, one day, one day I'm going to get a job. One day I'm going to have enough money. One day I'm going to get the recognition that I deserve. One day I'm going to be married. One day my body is no longer going to feel the pain of this disease, and I am going to be healthy. And what happens is some of you get to a place in life where it looks like those things are no longer possible, and you begin to despair. And you go through these same cycles that Frankel talks about where you get bitter, some of you, you get bitter, it, it, it kind of just colors your entire outlook on life. I mean, easy example on this, and I don't mean to pick on girls, but I think you'll, you'll follow this. Um, you know, you ever seen a girl who gets hurt really bad by a guy, and her response is, all men are pigs. Not a few of them, all of them. Why? Because the place where she placed her hope has been destroyed, and now it makes her bitter toward everything. Right? There, there, there's this response where when what you hope in is revealed, when it's shattered, you are left with the foundations of your soul, and sometimes you see that there's nothing else to really hold on to. You begin to despair. You know, I mean, throughout my life, in difficult times in, in, in my life, I, I've noticed the things that I've held on to. There were times in my life where I didn't feel like I was getting the recognition I deserved. So, you know, growing up, I was like, yeah, but one day I'm going to become this, and then everybody will know how awesome I am. That was the hope, and then what happens is you get to a place where you feel like it's not going to happen, and then you just, you, you respond with despair, you respond with bitterness. Peter says that you, to them, you've got a living hope, a hope like Frankel says that is beyond something that death and disease can touch. Where does this happen? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you far away from anything that death or disease could touch. There's your fixed reference point, by the way. Something glorious, something wonderful, something beyond the scope of this world. An inheritance and a hope that death and disease can't touch. Something that is so glorious that it makes all the pain worth it. And Peter says, I see this inheritance. This is very important. I see this inheritance through the resurrection of Jesus. Think for a minute about what, what the resurrection of Jesus meant for Peter. The darkest day of Peter's life had been when Jesus died on the cross. Peter had left everything to follow Jesus. He'd left his business, he'd left his home, and now Jesus had died and it threw him into a despair. In fact, you know, scholars tell us that the reason that Peter denied Christ three times in the space of an hour is because he was disappointed. He was disappointed that Jesus had not become what he thought Jesus would become. And in Friday and Saturday, Peter is in utter despair. But then Sunday morning, he goes and there's an empty tomb. And he looks into that empty tomb and then he sees Jesus face to face and he realizes that the whole time, even when Peter thought that it was the darkest time he could imagine, God had a plan. 
And yes, Friday and Saturday were painful for him, but there was a Sunday coming that reversed all the pain of Friday and Saturday. And what Peter says to them is, is we all of us, all of us right now are living in a kind of Saturday. That, that's part of the idea of exiles. We're not living in the time of Sunday yet. We're not living in the resurrection. That's, right now we're in a Friday and Saturday, but that time, he says, is brief. And the joy of resurrection Sunday is coming. So Peter's thinking about his experience where he despaired. But how the resurrection changed that. He's saying, that's what. That's what you're living in now. J.R.R. Tolkien described the resurrection as a time when every sad thing becomes untrue. There's actually Sam in the Lord of the Rings, the last one of those books where Sam said that. But that was J.R.R. Tolkien talking through Sam. The resurrection is, is when every sad thing becomes untrue. There is a great Sunday morning in eternity where all sad things come untrue. Where you are reunited with a lost child that you never got to know because they died in infancy. Where there is no more pain. Where all disease is taken away. Where there is no more crying and God wipes away every tear. That's what Peter means when he says an inheritance through the resurrection. You're living in Saturday, but there's a Sunday morning coming. Here's another thing I think Peter probably means by the resurrection, and I, and I bring this up with you a, a good bit because it's kind of deep, and, but it's really important. So I, I come back to it a lot. All right, so you, you ready? Get your theological big boy pants on. Peter saw in the resurrection that the time that it looked like God was most out of control, the cross, was the time when actually God was most in control. Because it wasn't just that God fixed the problem of the cross, right? It was that the cross actually was the thing that God was using to be good to mankind. It looked like God was out of control, but that was actually when God was doing his greatest work, right? Remember how I've explained this? And so what Peter is doing is he extrapolates from that and says, if that was true at the cross, don't you think it might be true in your life too? Don't you think that those times when it looks like God might be most out of control, that God might be doing his greatest work? Peter's like, hey, I thought that God had fallen off the throne when Jesus died on the cross, but turn around and look at it, and I, now I realize God was never more in charge than he was at the cross. Yeah, the way I explained to you a few months ago was like this. I was like, there's you know, kind of three kinds of movies that you'll see. There are happy movies that have happy endings. These are the kind of movies I like. There are sad movies that, you know, have really tragic endings that the critics like, which I don't like because, you know, they're like, oh, but it's so much more real to life. I'm like, yeah. I go to a movie so that I can escape the depression of life so that I can be happy for a few minutes. Don't make me, you know, right. But the sad movies. There's a third kind of movie that's a really probably the best kind, and that is a movie with a happy ending, that the happy ending is made up of all the tragic things that happen in the movie that, that somehow produce this good ending. The example I, I, I produ- I, that, I, that I gave to you a few um, months ago was that uh, movie Signs by um, M. Night Shyamalan. Hallelujah. Um, remember that guy? <laughs> Where, remember, the movie Signs basically is you've got like an alien attack, and you've got this one guy who's got all these problems in his family. Um, he's got a, a brother who had a failed baseball career. Um, his wife died in a wreck. His boy has asthma. Um, it, his little girl is OCD, and she leaves cups of water everywhere. But at the end of the movie, these are the very things that enable the alien to be killed and defeated. By the way, I just blew the, the ending of that movie if you've never seen it. The alien dies. Um, but the good ending at the end was made up 
of things that look like tragedy for a while. The best stories are those where the bad things somehow are part of the great conclusion of the end. And in that moment, all the pain that we live with is swallowed up into something beautiful. What if you saw your life through the lens of the cross and the resurrection? What if you believed, what if you saw and believed that there was a glorious Sunday morning coming when every sad thing would come untrue? When there would be an inheritance that death and disease could never touch and you saw how even the most painful parts of your life, God was working toward that glorious end. If you saw that and you could just grasp it and live in it for just a second and you believed it, what would that give you? What would it give you? Say it. Hope. So Peter says, verse 6, in this, in this, in what? In this promise, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Here's something really interesting about the two verbs in that sentence, rejoice and grieve. First, they're both very intense verbs. Rejoice means intense rejoicing. Peter will, in just a few verses, say, joy that is inexpressible. Have you ever been so overwhelmingly happy about something you just couldn't speak? Like my five-year-old when she got her American Girl doll for Christmas last year. I mean, just four minutes of silence with joy inexpressible. You just can't speak. He's talking about a joy that's not just, hey, I'm happy. He's talking about a joy that, that is so intense that words can't, can't flesh it out. Grieved. Grieved is the Greek word lupeo, which means an intense grief. It's the same word that was used of Jesus when it says he was sorrowful unto death when he was on his way to the cross. A grief that crushed him, right? So that's, you notice they're both intense verbs. Second, they're both present tense verbs. Both present tense verbs. You put that together and here's what you get. Walking, listen, walking with Jesus is often simultaneously great joy and deep pain. Walking with Jesus is often simultaneously great joy and deep pain. Some of you don't think that's possible. Some of you can't have joy in the midst of bad circumstances because your joy is in certain circumstances. You don't have joy. What you have is happiness. Happiness, where the the root word for happiness comes from is when what you want to happen happens. When what you want to happen happens, then your happiness, right? Your happeniness. You You see it like that? There's a difference in joy and happiness. Happiness is when the happenings of your life are where they should be. Joy is something different, altogether different, at least this kind of joy. Some of you can't have joy in the midst of painful circumstances because your joy is a certain set of circumstances. Right? There others of you, you know, there's other Christians, this is one of my pet peeves, where, 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 where it's like you, you just kind of numb yourself to the reality that there is pain and you kind of put this like positive spin on it. You know, where, where you, just, you just never really feel it. You walk around with this surreal look on your face, all chipper, you know. God is good all the time. Thought we'd never get over that one in the church. Um, God is good, you know, and you're like, oh, well, there's uh, you let go and let God. Don't worry. God will put a rainbow on that dark cloud. There's a silver lining. When Jesus went to the cross, you know, and, 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 and the Father reveals to him that he's going to have to die on the cross, Jesus is not like, well, praise the Lord. It says he was overwhelmed with sorrow. He wept. He cried out to God. Christians hurt. They hurt, but see, their hurt can only go so deep because their ultimate hope is in a God who brings back life from the dead, the God who turns tragedy into triumph, 
a God who takes us through the cross to bring us to the resurrection so they can simultaneously be filled with intense joy and deep pain. In fact, what Peter's showing you is that it's almost like a thermostat. You know, a thermostat, it's the cold that kicks on the thermostat and makes the heat come on, right? Peter's saying the cold of suffering is what kicks on the heat of your faith. There is a kind of joy, inexpressible joy, some of you have never really felt because you've never been through the pain of despair. And when you go through the pain of despair, that's when God uses the cold of despair to kick on an intensity of faith and an intensity of joy that will become to you inexpressible because you will simultaneously be filled with deep sorrow and unspeakable joy. So he goes on, verse 7. So that, watch, the tested genuineness of your faith, faith that is more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire. Peter's saying God's purpose in this is he's allowing these trials to purify faith in you. He says it's like gold. I know not many of you are goldsmiths, but what they say is that when you want to purify gold, you heat it up. Because what will happen is as you're heating it up, gold is one of the last things that would evaporate. So all the impurities, what they call the dross, float to the top of the gold and they scrape them off and the remaining gold is much more pure as a result of it having gone through the furnace. Peter says that's what these trials are like. They are heating up your life so that the impurities of your faith, the places where it looks like you have faith but you don't really have faith, they'll be burned away. Trials reveal those places where you don't really trust God. Some of you don't trust God. How do we know that? Because as soon as things start going wrong, you start thinking, oh, God, you've forgotten me. God, where are you? God, I don't deserve this. You don't trust him. In fact, as I was preparing this message, I just had this really strong impression that there is a lady here. I, I don't know which campus she's at, but there's a lady who's about to give up on her marriage because you don't really trust God. So you don't trust God to continue to work in your marriage and to sustain you, so you're about to take matters into your own hands. Trials reveal those places where you don't want really to trust God. Trials reveal where you love God's gifts more than you love God. I know, I know of a guy, actually I know several stories like this, of people who grew up in those prosperity churches that basically teach you that, you know, if you serve God the way you should, then he's going to give you all the, you know, the, the, the blessings of life. He's you're going to drive the car, live in the right neighborhood. And this guy, for, me, for a while, man, he was super excited about God. He was into God, but then he got disappointed. Things started to go wrong for him. And now he doesn't believe in God at all. In fact, he's kind of gotten into the, you know, sort of the, the new atheism, looking for reasons to discredit the Christian faith. That's because his faith and his joy was never really in God. His faith and his joy was in the things that God, he thought, could give him. That's the problem I have with the prosperity gospel. It turns God into a means to an end. It gets people excited about God. Yeah, I mean, turn on the TV and watch the prosperity gospel services, you'll see people excited about God, hands in the air, waving, screaming at God, but they're excited about God the way that I'd be excited about a winning lottery ticket. The actual lottery ticket, I, it's just a piece of paper. But if it's, you know, I can turn it in and get $150 million from it, it becomes valuable to me. I hang on to it. I'm excited about it. But the moment I get that $150 million, I throw away the ticket because I wasn't into the ticket. I was just, the ticket was just a means to an end. They're excited about God, but not because of God, but because of what they think God can give them. The prosperity gospel creates idolaters who use God as a means to his gifts rather than lovers of God who would give up his gifts to possess him. Trials show you both those things, and trials purify your faith. Some of you never really had your faith tested, maybe until now. 
you never had your faith tested. This has happened to me several times. One of the most distinct was when I served as a church planner. There was a situation, which I won't go into detail now, but this is one I was very afraid. Some friends of mine that were on our team had been put into prison. It was a mob that had burned their cars. For two or three days, it looked like our lives were in danger. You know, since the time I was 16 years old, I've been standing up in places like this one telling people that you need to, to be bold and to give your life for Jesus. I'm going to tell you something. When you think somebody's about to take you up on that offer, it's an altogether different ballgame. I just remember how terrified I was, how afraid. I wasn't ready to give up my life for Jesus. I didn't trust God. And if I could have dug a hole and, and buried myself in it, that's what I would have done. I remember how humiliated I felt during that time because the talk of my faith was revealed as dross and I saw how very little actual faith there was. Peter had been through that. Peter got to a point where he felt humiliated because all this talk about, I'll go die for you, Jesus, and then things start going wrong and he denies Jesus three times in the space of an hour. Peter feels humiliated. Peter says, I know what it's like to go through this, but don't resist it because God is actually producing something in you that is more valuable to you than gold and is something that can give you more joy than any blessing of God could ever give to you. Can you believe that? Can you believe that in your dark moment, God might be doing it because he loves you and teaching you to trust him and have a joy in him that you probably couldn't get any other way? Hey, I was reading my Bible the other day, um, the Gospel of John, and I came across a story that you, most of you be familiar with, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and I noticed something in this story that I'd never seen before. I probably preached on this a dozen times, never seen it. Basically, the story is this. Jesus is good friends with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. He genuinely loves them. They're, you know, they're part of his circle. He hears that Lazarus is sick. Well, the great thing about having Jesus as a friend is when you're sick, Jesus comes and heals you, right? So, you know, they send a message like, hey, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. He might die. Why don't you come on down here, heal him, and go back to your business? So here's what it says, okay? This is what I never noticed. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, verse 6, so... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was and let Lazarus die. Talk about a non sequitur. If Jesus loved him, he would go heal him. But no, because, so, because he loved them, he let Lazarus die. Because there was something about himself that they could not learn had he just gone to heal Lazarus. And the greatest act of love that God can give to us is not any blessing that he gives us. It's allowing us to see and know more of himself. You see, joy inexpressible doesn't come from any of God's blessings. Happiness comes from some of God's blessings. Joy inexpressible comes from God himself. Inexpressible joy comes not from any of his blessings, but from knowing him himself, because God is better than all of his gifts. And trials produce that. They produce joy. They produce the faith that produces joy, almost the way that cold kicks on the thermostat and makes the heat come on. Verse 7, so that your faith, he says, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here, here's a question. Praise and glory and honor. Is that praise and glory and honor that we give to Jesus? Or is that praise and glory and honor that Jesus gives to us? Don't answer because you probably get it wrong. 
Well, we think praise, glory, and honor, that's always things that we give to Jesus, and that is true. But in this case, every commentary that I consulted said this. This is praise and glory and honor that come from Jesus. Peter looks forward to that and says, I am willing to be an exile, a stranger. I'm willing to be nobody here because the joy of that is so intense that I don't care about anybody else's opinion any longer. You see, Peter had been a guy who depended, like many of us, on the opinions of others. There's that that awesome, ridiculous, stupid scene in the Gospels where, you know, Jesus and the disciples are walking on the road. Peter and a few of them are up there arguing, and Jesus says, hey, what are you arguing about? They're like, oh, no, we're not there. He's like, no, 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 you were talking about something. And they're like, oh, you know. And he's like, hey, you know, I'm a sovereign God, so I pretty much know I just want to hear you admit it. And so they're like, okay, um, we were arguing about which one of us is going to be the greatest and which one of us is going to sit at your right and your left hand of the kingdom of God. That, that was Peter. That Peter always thinking about how am I looking in front of everybody else. And now Peter's in a place where he's like, I don't care about praise and honor and glory from you. Why? Because I'm getting it from Jesus. And what good is the high opinions of a bunch of no-account earthlings, which is all of you, with no offense. What, what, what difference does the high opinions of a bunch of no-account earthlings matter if I've got the approval of the only God whose approval is the only one that really matters anyway? I'll be despised by everybody if, if I know that I'm looking forward to that with you. I haven't told you this story in a while, but I'll, so I'll, tell, I'll give you a clipping version of it because some of you have been around here long enough, you have heard me tell this story. Um, one of the greatest moments of my life happened when I was 22 years old, and uh, I think it was my first year of seminary, last year of college, I can't remember, um, but I was coaching a soccer team. Um, so I, you know, I coached this 12-year-old boys soccer team. I can't remember what league it was, but I remember that they were awesome. And they were awesome, you know, partly because they were great athletes, but partly because I was a great coach. And we made it all the way through the season undefeated. Undefeated. We made it to the Harnett County semifinals. Um, our guys walked on that field. It was, it was a night game, our first night game. And it was a big deal. A lot of, a lot of people were there. I, this, I don't know. I remember, again, I can't remember what league it was, but it was, it was, there was a lot of parents there, and our, our guys walked on that field. They had this little ritual. I won't tell you where they learned it. But they would take off their shirts. They would spit on the ground. This is before the game started. They would wipe mud, make little piles of mud, and they would wipe it on their faces and on their chest and put their shirts back on. Before the game ever started, they looked like they'd been in an Irish potato war or something like that, where they just, I mean, it was, they were, because you know, 12-year-old boys are starting to go through that change, you know what I'm talking about? The, little, the voice change, everything. And so, I mean, these guys, they, they went through their ritual. They walked on that field so cocky. They got killed. <laughs> um, the final score didn't reflect it. They only lost three to one. Uh, but that was just because I'd set up such an awesome defensive strategy that the other team just couldn't score. Um, but the other team dominated the game. And they really did. It was one of those ones where we just hardly got any shots on goal, and they must have gotten, you know, just tons of them. And uh, so they had this one player on their team. Listen closer to this. They had this one player on their team, and she was awesome. Oh, yeah. My little chauvinist had no category for this. They had no way to process that the most awesome player they had dealt with all season was a girl. I have no idea who this girl was. In fact, it was about the time that Mia Hamm would have been 12 years old. I went back and looked it up. She played nowhere near Harnett County. Um, <laughs> but she was, like, she was like Michael Jordan with the soccer ball. Anything a girl wanted to do, she could do. She was the best player we had encountered all season. She must have gotten 50 shots on goal. Ten minutes left to go in the second half. We're losing two to one. 
um, I pulled out one of our fullbacks, a kid named David. And I said, David, I'm sick and tired of that girl getting shots on goal. He said, me too, coach. I hate that girl. I said, David, <laughs> you don't need to hate her, but, but we need to stop her. Say, like, David, I, that girl cannot get another shot on goal. You understand me? Yes, sir, coach. David, you got one assignment for the remaining 10 minutes of this game. Yes, sir, coach. David, she is your assignment. Anytime that girl steps foot in the penalty box with the ball, I want that girl on her rear end. You understand me, David? Yes, sir, coach. I said, David, that's your only assignment. I don't care if the guy next to you burst into flames. That's not your responsibility. <laughs> she is your responsibility. Yes, sir, coach. David turns around, starts running back on the field. He gets about 10 feet from me. I was like, David, do it legally. Because we'd worked on this. It was called a slide tackle. That's right. And so, so he goes back on the field. Two minutes pass by. I honestly forgot about what I'd said to him because I'm noticing this, this genius come down the left side of the field. She goes through. She gets down to the corner. She goes through the right fullback. Like, I don't know what, but when she's done, he's in the fetal position crying for his mom. Um, <laughs> She comes back up to the middle. Um, David played stopper. Uh, it was um, the sweeper and the goalie, the only two people that were there. And uh, she does something with her. I, she pump fake or something, but they just disappeared. I don't know where those two guys went. So it's just her and a wide open goal. And about that time, this thought crosses my mind. I'm like, doggone it. She has done it again. She got a wide open goal. This is going to be it. This is the end of the game. Now the left side of my peripheral vision comes this blur, <laughs> this <laughs> He's got this tractor beam on her, and he just, <laughs> he hits her from behind. I mean, full spread eagle attack. Just, I mean, it's beautiful. It's like a swan dive. Just, <laughs> he hits her, big cloud of dust. And it was one of those moments where everybody was like, did that just happen? That just happened. And so the dust settles for a minute, and it was like everybody on the field, everybody in the field, gets angry at once, right? Because they just realize what happened. Their team, all for different reasons. Their team is angry because they think, you know, we try to take out their star player. The referee's angry because he's like, can you give a kid a red card when he's 12 years old and throw him out for, you know, the rest of the season? Um, um, uh, our team is angry because they knew they handed the other team a penalty kick in the penalty box. Our, our, our parents are angry because they think psycho coach sent this kid in to take this little girl out. The only person who seems oblivious of this is David. So he stands up, he dusts himself off, reaches down like a perfect little gentleman and helps this girl up. Just like, oh, you okay? Everything okay? Then he turns around 180 degrees. He's 50 yards from me. He turns around and goes like this. He goes, like that. What do me. And all the eyes are now directed toward me. <laughs> and I'm thinking, lawsuit. That's, you know, that's the only thing going on in my mind. So I was like, oh, you know, so, so, I, so I pulled David out of the game. I'm like, David, you know, pulled him out of the game, and he comes in running over, and, and uh, he gets about 10 feet from me, and I'm like, David, son, what's wrong with you? Like, I'm doing this for the parents because I want them to hear me say this. It's like, David, what's wrong with you, son? What were you thinking? Where's your brain? Point to your brain. And he, he points out, and I said, David, what, 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 what was that? He looks at me with this indignant and innocent little 12-year-old face, and he says, Coach. You told me to take her out illegally. Illegally. <laughs> he thought the last thing that I'd said to him before he went on the field was he thought that I said, David, do it nasty. Just take her out. Now, here's the thing. He knew. He was a good enough player 
that he knew the rules. He knew that he'd probably get a red card. He'd probably get grounded. He'd probably get jumped on the playground after this was over. But none of that cared. You want to know why? Because in his little warped 12-year-old mind, the praise and the honor and the glory that came from the coach was worth anything else that he would go through. Essentially, conversion to Jesus, conversion to Jesus is when you come to a place where the approval and the delight of a God that you can't see right now but whose face you'll know will stare into an eternity becomes so weighty to you that you're willing to endure anything to be despised by everyone because his approval, his presence is such a delight to your soul that it makes you speak with joy inexpressible even in the midst of everything else going wrong. That's conversion to Christ. Conversion to Christ is not using God as a better means to a better family. It's not a means to finding purpose. It's not a means to finding balance. Conversion to Christ is when he becomes so valuable to you that everything else seems like nothing because of how much weight he has in your life. That's why Peter goes on to say, though you've not really seen him, you love him. What? You love him. That's Christianity, love of him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. What's the outcome of your faith? A great marriage? What's the outcome of your faith? A new BMW, health and prosperity? No, some of those may be side effects of your faith, but he is the outcome of your faith. He is what you love and seek. The salvation of your souls. Salvation of your souls is when you understand that you get to be in the presence of God for eternity and you realize that God has been working all things for good in your life to get you to the place where you can understand and believe and delight in God. Simultaneously, grievous pain and intense joy come from knowing him. So that's the question. Can you believe in a God that's doing that right now in your life? That in the pain and in the disappointment that you're going through, that he's purifying you for himself that he's preparing you for an inheritance that's beyond your comprehension? And do you sense the glory of that God and feel the weight of his love so much that it fills you now, even in the midst of the deepest and darkest pain, with inexpressible joy because of how valuable he is to you? You say, well, J.D., where does that kind of faith come from? I'd love to have that kind of faith. Well, he tells you there's two different places, and I'll do this really quickly because I don't want want to leave you with this desire to have faith but not the ability to have it. It's two places. Verse 4. He says, it comes through the resurrection. It comes through the resurrection. Let me point out something to you real quick. Do you understand how important the resurrection was to Peter? Because without the resurrection, none of this makes any sense. Which is significant because I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, Jesus was a great moral teacher. He was kind of years ahead of his time. He taught some awesome things. But the whole idea about him and God raising from the dead, that was something that later Christians made up like three or 400 years later. That wasn't part of the original apostles. Baloney. You can see in 1 Peter that everything that Peter, what caused this transformation in Peter was the belief that Jesus actually got out of the grave. That's the only thing that caused it in him. Without the resurrection, all this is baseless to him. Peter went from being a guy that denied Christ in the space of an hour three times to being a guy who would literally give up everything for him. You know, church history tells us, John 21 tells us, that Peter was crucified upside down. Eusebius, the church historian, says that before Peter was crucified, the day before, he watched his wife be crucified. And his last words to her as she's drug out and nailed to a cross was, remember Christ, my beloved. Remember Christ. What kind of joy, where does that transformation come from? 
It comes from the fact that Peter believed that Jesus rose from the dead. He says he believes it because he saw it with his own eyes. See, one thing is absolutely for certain. Peter believed Jesus rose from the dead. Now, you might say, well, he was deluded. He actually wasn't really Jesus. It was somebody else that he saw. He saw some other dude walk around Jerusalem, thought it was Jesus. Boom, resurrection story. You could believe that, but what you can't believe is that Peter didn't really believe that Jesus rose from the dead because everything he's saying in this transformation grows out of the resurrection. The reason, listen, the reason that I follow Jesus, I want you to understand this. The reason I follow Jesus is because I believe that what Jesus revealed was true and that it is verified by an empty tomb. I don't follow Jesus because he gives me a better moral system. I don't follow Jesus because he answers all my questions because you know what? He hasn't answered all my questions. I got a long list of questions I can't explain to you. I don't follow Jesus because that's what my parents followed. I follow Jesus because what he revealed was true and it's verified by an empty tomb. That's why I follow Jesus. So you got to decide that. You got to decide. I'm not telling you follow Christianity because that's the, just my preferred religion. Is it true? Is it true? Is the empty tomb, is it really empty? Because according to Peter, if it's not, it's all useless. It's all useless. But if Jesus Christ really raised from the dead, that changes everything. You're like, oh, well, Christianity doesn't really work for me. I don't care if it works for you. My question is, is it true? Because if it's true, then, then we'll figure out if it works for you or not. The resurrection is where that faith comes from. There's another place. Let me show it to you real quick. Verse 10. Keep reading this. this is, I love these verses. There's a lot of wonderful stuff in here we're going to skip over, so don't, don't get distressed if it doesn't make any sense. Because I'm not going to take time to explain it. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when you predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Show me 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you, the gospel, through those who preach the good news, gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which, watch this, even the angels long to look. There is a reality that even the angels who stare into the face of God Long. That word long is, a, is another very intense verb that means obsess. They're obsessed. Look means behold. That's how you translate that word. There's a reality that the angels long to look into. That is the gospel. The other place this faith comes from is the mystery and the magnificence and the glory of the gospel. The gospel to me, y'all, is so mysterious. Because here I'm looking at a God who apparently, apparently loved me so much that not even death itself could stand in his way who took upon himself the penalty of my sin into himself so that he could rescue me. That's what the cross shows me. But then, at the same time, over the years, I've had so many questions about faith. Why do innocent people suffer? Why do so few people seem to know about Jesus? Why is there hell? I was listening to a guy named Sam Harris the other day, who's one of the new atheists. Just go off for about 10 minutes on an invective against Christianity. All the, for 10 minutes, all these questions. After about 10 minutes, why he doesn't believe, after about 10 minutes, I'm like, those are all my questions. You and I have the same questions. But I look then at the cross, and I see in the cross that that's what I deserve, and my mouth is stopped because I know that's what I deserve. 
I understand my sinfulness against God. And I understand that the world's under a curse because of sin. That the whole race of us, all of us, have rebelled against God. So I look at the cross and I see God's tenderness. I see a cross that I know should have been mine. And I still got a lot of questions. But then my mouth is stopped. And then I remember one of my favorite verses, Deuteronomy 29, 29, which says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. And what that means is this. There are some secret things that I probably will never understand this side of eternity. Because I just don't know God's thoughts. And even if God explained it to me, I probably couldn't understand him because I'm not smart enough. Isaiah 55, verse 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. And my ways are higher than your ways, about as high as the heavens are above the earth. So you need to quit demanding that I explain everything to you because you don't have the, the mental capacity to understand it all. You know, if my power, my love, or what they say they are, imagine how much greater my wisdom is than yours. So I look at this stuff, and I look at the mystery of the gospel, and it blows my mind. And I say, okay, I'm always demanding that God give me explanation, but God doesn't give me explanation. He gives me revelation. When I want answers, what God gives me is the gospel, and he says, look into this. You stare at this, and you base your understanding of me on what I revealed about myself at the cross. You'll see my magnificence and my mystery. And yeah, there might be some things that you just don't understand. Oh God, but if you love me, how come I'm suffering the way that I am? Would you be willing to believe that there is a God who is as tender to you as the cross says he is? Even if you can't understand what his wisdom is doing in your life right now. Oh God, why is it there that innocent children suffer? Could you believe that there is a God that is so holy that the world is under a rightful curse because of that, and everybody suffers because of that curse. You say, well, what about the kids? They didn't do anything wrong. They're going to grow up. When they grow up, they'll do the things wrong that all of us have done because all people choose to rebel against God. And by the way, God says that in eternity, he gives an inheritance to those right, innocent ones that would make up for all the suffering in the world. Could you believe in a God that was saying that those things were true? My faith grows in one place, the cross. So you see, like Paul and John and every other Bible writer, Peter leaves you gazing at the cross. He tells you to stare deeply into the cross because there are mysteries there that not even the angels understand, and they long to look into it. It is not often that I have the chance to quote from both Tim Keller and myself at the same time, okay? So get, cameras, get a, get a shot of this. this, is, this is, okay, no, I'm kidding. Um, I, I wrote it down here. Listen to this. This is from the, the forward that Tim Keller wrote in the book. Listen to this. One of the most startling passages in the Bible to me connects the magnificence of angels with the mystery of the gospel. Angels are incredibly majestic and powerful beings living in God's eternal presence. Yet there is something that has happened on earth which is so stupendous that even these immortal beings experience the persistent longing to look into these things. What are these things that could possibly and consistently consume the attention of God-fixated creatures? The answer is the gospel. The angels never get tired of looking into the gospel. That means there is no end to gospel exploration. There are depths in the gospel that are always there to be discovered and applied not only to our ministry and daily Christian life, but above all to the worship of the God of the gospel with renewed vision and humility. The underlying conviction in my preaching, pastoring, and writing, says Keller, is that the gospel, this eternally fascinating message craved by the angels, can change a heart, a community, and the world when it is recovered and applied. And if you want to read, want to read more about that, then you'll have to get gospel. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, the cross. 
the mystery of the cross, the resurrection and the cross. My faith has found, says the hymn writer, a resting place. Not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds, they plead for me. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. The cross and the resurrection is the place where your faith will go deep. So I invite you to just gaze into the gospel. Dwell on the gospel, which I'm pointing this where the gospel used to be. Where gaze into the gospel and look into it the way that the angels look into it. And let it ravage your soul to where you have inexpressible joy even in the midst of deep pain. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes at all of our campuses, if you would. I wonder if you're there. For those of you there, are there that are there in the midst of pain right now. I'm inviting you to have faith in the God of the resurrection and the cross. The great thing is you don't have to work up that faith. You don't want to know why? Because faith is not something you work up. Faith is just recognizing the truth that is true about God, whether you believe it or not. God really has resurrected Jesus, and he really is working out his plan, whether you understand it or not. And God loves you as much as the cross says that God loves you, whether you feel it or not. So right now, I'm not inviting you to work up faith. I'm just inviting you to believe God. And rest in what is true about God, whether you believe it or not. Some of you are not there now, but you're about to go through this kind of pain. I would invite you to gaze at the gospel deeply. Let it shatter all your false hope and all your false faith that God would ground you in something that can never be taken away. Father, give this church joy inexpressible and full of glory. Because our hope is in the gospel, in the resurrection, in the God of tenderness that is revealed at the cross. God, where we can't handle explanation, we pray that you would give us faith in the revelation so that our faith finds its resting place. I pray in Jesus' name.